Hi, everyone. I'm Ashley Minogue from OpenView's expansion team, where I help software startups accelerate their revenue growth to build long-lasting companies. This season on Build, we're talking about product-led growth. Each week, I'll speak with tech executives and founders to hear firsthand how they've leveraged a product-led growth model to put product at the center of their acquisition, conversion, and expansion strategies. Now on with the show. Today's episode is all about PQLs, or Product Qualified Leads. We'll be chatting about why they've driven such a shift in the lead funnel, how PQLs can accelerate growth, and dramatically lower CAC. Today, I'm joined by Kieran Flanagan, VP of Marketing at HubSpot, to hear about HubSpot's journey to PQLs and how it unlocked top-line revenue and has driven down cost. Kieran, thanks for joining me today. Hey, I'm excited to be here and talk about freemium PQLs and all that exciting stuff. Yes, likewise. So before we jump into all of that, could you just introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, yeah, so my name is Kieran. I work at HubSpot. I'm a VP of Marketing. And during my time at HubSpot, which has been five years, I joined HubSpot to grow out the international business and then moved to a small team to grow out our freemium business. And that's where I got introduced to the wonderful world of freemium uh, user acquisition, PQLs, and all we the things that I like to no, become a total nerd. <laughs> so let's actually talk about when HubSpot first decided to launch a freemium product, given you were there and really one of the founding members of the team who was going to start that that element of the business. So what was the impetus behind launching freemium? Yeah, to give myself a no credit for that decision and all the credit to a couple of other people. <laughs> so HubSpot is smart enough to know that you have to continually be looking for ways to disrupt yourself before others do. And I think one of the, they've made many smart moves within their time. And one of the smart moves they made was to try to figure out if there are different ways we could go to market with some of our different product sets. And so a lot of the early foundations of HubSpot's freemium model can be, I think, traced back to really Brian Balfour, who joined HubSpot and was at HubSpot for two years as the VP of growth, now CEO at WeForge, which teaches people how to do growth. Christopher O'Donnell, who's our SVP of product, and Mark Roberge, who's one of the founding members of HubSpot and was our chief revenue officer. And they, all friends of OpenView. <laughs> yeah, you should. I'm sure you know them all, all well. They launched a kind of like a product under a different brand called Psychic. And Sidekick, I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but it was like an email notifications tool, helped you figure out if people were interacting with your emails and was really great for salespeople and was all done through freemium and touchless upgrades through the product. That was kind of the original freemium or introduction to freemium for HubSpot. And we kind of took those learnings and started to apply them to our products. And that's when I joined is when we were actually winding down Sidekick and taking what Brian and Chris and Mark had learned and starting to apply to our products, our HubSpot products. Great. And so you're making the move to apply to the main products. Where did PQLs come into play? And for those who may not be as familiar with PQLs, can you just explain to our listeners what actually a PQL is? Yeah, PQL is another fun acronym that we all like to invent to confuse people, but it's basically <laughs> a, a product qualified lead. And there are probably many variations of product qualified leads that different companies look at. And really, it's a way to monetize the people who are using your free products. And so we could we had three types of product qualified leads. We had hand raise, 
PQLs, which were really in the early days, just call to actions. We put in different points within the product to get people to reach out to us to say they were interested in learning more about the paid products. Usage PQLs, which is probably the most common for a lot of freemium companies, it works really well, which is when you give people enough of the product on a free basis so they can use it and get a lot of value from it, but not enough that they can use it to the extent where they can do it on an ongoing basis. And for, and if they find value, they tend to upgrade. And then there's upgrade PQLs. They were really in the early days of HubSpot gated features. So things that you could not access unless you paid for. And did you guys go to market with all of those three different types of PQLs? So I think a lot of people, as they're thinking about launching freemium, gravitate towards, all right, either we're going to set up freemium and heavily drive based on usage or take the other approach and gate based on specific features. So did you actually go to market with all three in the beginning? We had a kind of a variation of, we had some of all three, right? But we leaned heavily on hand-raised PQLs. So we had some call to actions in the product. Again, in the very, very early days to figure out what points within the product where people find enough value that they had thought to themselves, hey, I actually really want to reach out to HubSpot and figure out how we can pay for this. And then we had a lot of features that you could use until a certain trigger was met. So a good example was one of our most popular features was email templates for salespeople. So you could create these email templates and reach out to people with them. And you could get so many templates for free until you had to upgrade. In the early days, actually, we had quite a few features that were completely gated. And over time, we've actually moved them from gated to triggered because we found that the upside on having triggered PQLs, like upgrade PQLs, usage PQLs, was a lot higher. So you tend to get more people using them, better upgrade rates and better retention rates through the funnel. That's a great point. In terms of determining which features do you initially gate completely or which features do you give some leads a taste of, but then gate the usage? What kind of principles do you guys think about when determining which route to go? Yes, that is a really great question. And I don't think we have it distilled down into a mathematical science. A lot of the reasons, honestly, we looked at, you know, some of the features we gated because we just knew that they would have a huge amount of value, a really good upgrade rate. And we wanted to make sure that there were reasons for people to reach out and talk to the sales team around about the HubSpot platform and, and the reasons to upgrade. And a lot of the reasons we think about moving gated to to freemium isn't just because it tended to convert better and isn't just because I think that in a kind of world that is moving towards a product first mentality, it's better to give value first before you have, you know, you try to extract value for the company or revenue for the company. But we tended to look at the features that we could turn into acquisition channels on their own. We would see that there was a gated feature. And if we had that for free and we were able to do these things within that feature, it would help us acquire more users into the HubSpot ecosystem, maybe because it was an external facing feature and it had a lot of viral potential, like a lot of potential to instill some virality, maybe because it was a lot of organic search volume for it. And we knew that we could rank for that and acquire more people into the free feature. So we tended to matrix out the reasons we would want to have something free and something gated based upon 
how good that feature would be for acquisition and how good that feature would be for monetization. But again, it's not, there was no like equation that helped us to do that in the back end. Some of it was based on general um, research and some of it, and a lot of it was based on gut feelings. Mm-hmm. And that's a great point, especially in the early days of launching freemium. A lot of that's going to be driven by testing and learning and continuing to iterate. Exactly. So Talk to us about how PQLs came into play while you still had more traditional MQLs in your funnel as well. How do you think about the differences between the two and why is there a need for both? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, HubSpot's model has been to generate leads through the you know valuable content we create and turn those leads into MQLs. And what we took from the Sidekick model was, you know, there's this other way that we can also layer in different types of conversion points through instead of acquiring through content, you would acquire through people actually using your software for free. And I think it for us, there's, there's reasons to, to do both. Like we decided to have a a free CRM and some free sales tools because we felt that was the best go to market for those products. And in that, when you've kind of selected that as your go to market, that dictates the kind of conversion point that you optimize towards and we've actually taken that and applied it to our other products so for example on the marketing side where we still generate a lot of leads and mqls you can now also use our hubspot marketing free product with all of its features for free and then you can upgrade and pql in the same way so there's there's still a lot of value in the you know production of valuable content. People are still knowledge thirsty, and I think that tends to convert into MQLs. But there's this, there's also a cohort of people who want to use your software for free, who want you to demonstrate that you have valuable problems that you can solve through your software prior to them taking the decision to actually upgrade and pay you money. So I think it depends how you want to acquire the people into your ecosystem, whether it's through free software, which tends to lend itself to product qualified leads or some sort of product conversion, or that you want to acquire people through things like content and these other things, which tend to lend themselves to converting those people into a marketing qualified lead and just talking with a, reaching out and talking with a salesperson. For sure. What stands out to me in, in listening to the story of, you know, the introduction of PQLs, but while still maintaining both MQLs and PQLs is they're both just ways to acquire new customers. And one is via content, which really HubSpot helped invent, right, with inbound marketing. But PQLs is all about thinking about how your product can also be an acquisition channel as well. Yeah, exactly. I think you sit down and you think about, okay, how are we going to market? How best, given these people uh, whose problems we solve with our products, like how best should we acquire them? Like what are the ways that they want to interact with us? And maybe they want to consume content and they have problems that you can solve through content, but maybe they want to actually go use software and there's problems that you can solve through free software and then upgrade them to paying customers when you've demonstrated that value and you make the kind of decision based upon that. So I think there is definitely, you know, a good, there's a place for leads and MQLs and there's a place for product qualified leads and they can kind of live in harmony together as well. Mm -hmm. For sure. 
So thinking about the cohort of customers who's probably better served by the free experience, getting to interact with the free version of the product and really get to test it out firsthand, can you share some examples of events that have resulted in high conversion for HubSpot? Yeah, so I can give you a little bit of our our process in terms of how we went through building a kind of conversion rate optimization team for for PQLs and for in-app tests. And the first thing we did was that we built this pretty incredible dashboard. And I'm using the word incredible not to big myself up because I didn't build it. It was actually <laughs> two guys called Scott, Scott Tasley and Sam Wiesek who are far smarter than I am. And they were on my team and they built this incredible dashboard that allowed us to see the individual funnel of every PQL point. So when someone clicked on you know, a call to action within the product or if someone saw a trigger within the product because he'd used up a certain amount of the feature, and they actually clicked on the call to action in the little modal that would pick pop up. We could actually see the full funnel. So we could see the category of PQLs that belong to you. We could see how many times people had interacted with that PQL, how many people had closed into customers and what was the average deal size and how much MRR we actually obtain or uh, get in from that PQL. And that allowed us to stack rank PQLs based upon the ones with that were the highest converting and kind of take ones that had the most potential to improve. And so we kind of went from every kind of growth team spends its initial kind of first six months trying to demonstrate value. So people don't think they're just this weird bunch of people who are changing colors of buttons or wants (laughs) to maybe make odd requests. And people are like, what are these people trying to ruin my product or something? And so we started with like very simplistic tests, which were kind of call to action. So just put in different call to actions within the product at points where we could see people were extracting value from the product and getting people to reach out to us. And so an example would be on the dashboard and the CRM. Again, very you will not see this today, but back in the early days, we uh, had a call to action that asked someone, did they want to reach out to get a walkthrough of the CRM, a consultation? And weirdly enough, like just this small call to action became our highest converting PQL point and generated a ton of money within the you know six to eight months we had it in there. And so that we would use those learnings and then go and try to do some more complex type of tests. So what we learned through uh, an experiment was when you actually interacted with one of our PQLs, so we kind of did away with those kind of hand-raised things where we had call to actions dotted throughout the product because that's not a great product experience. And any PM will actually think, oh my God, like this is awful. You're putting call to actions into my product and rightly so. And we instrumented what we called our PQL modal and the PQL modal would pop up within the app when a trigger had been met. And initially that modal allowed you to interact with HubSpot in two ways which was you could either talk to sales or you could upgrade uh, now through a touchless sale. And we experimented with adding some additional communication channels. So we allowed you to schedule a meeting with the salesperson right there within the app. So you would click the button, schedule a meeting, and our meeting scheduling app software would pop open. And you could actually book time with a rep right there within the app. You didn't have to go back and forth through email. And then you could actually put a note to for someone to call you back. And then we also added in live chat and that sounds like an easy experiment, but it was very complex because we had to instrument the scheduling app to work within the product and we had to instrument live chat. And we also had to get someone to be the person who could communicate through the live chat. And our 
big takeaway there was that people love to live chat, right? Our live chat became our highest converting communication channel, like PQL type. I think the important thing there is like we started off with very simplistic tests and then use those learnings to figure out how we can run more complex tests in the way that people interacted with HubSpot within the app, kind of changing from that upgrade now or talk to sales to the, you can schedule a meeting with a sales rep within the app. You can add a note for a sales rep to call you back within the app and you can actually live chat with someone right there within the app and get your problem solved there and then. I think that's a great example and one that's certainly relevant for lots of folks thinking about what's the balance of having sales folks involved versus a more touchless sale. So those iterations that you guys went through is certainly relevant for a lot of our listeners. So you mentioned this dashboard, which I feel like most growth or marketing leaders and CEOs all have the one dashboard they live by. But can you talk more broadly about how the shift to PQLs impacted your overarching KPIs? Like, How did you think about balancing the lead funnel from PQLs and MQLs? What did it mean for your overarching metrics? Yeah, so I going, going back to, to when I started on freemium, my metrics were actually only freemium because we were our own little company within HubSpot, which I think is another interesting learning from the way that this developed in that HubSpot kind of saw allowed us to be our own little company and forge our own kind of path to figure out this go-to-market. So my core metrics were the number of users I was acquiring, the number our activation rates, the number that turned into PQLs, and ultimately our revenue. Revenue from freemium was becoming a real part of HubSpot business. And HubSpot kind of took that freemium company, which was our little company, into the core HubSpot business and kind of made that part of every team's um, role. So when I was doing freemium, I was only really focused on freemium metrics. I didn't look at MQL. So my KPIs were how many users we were acquiring, what was the weekly active user rate, what was the weekly active team rate, because that was the core thing we tried to measure uh, which we call watts, which is, it can go into this, but it's like our North Star metric. We know if we can increase watts, we're going to have a better re- retention rate, better monetization rate. And then how many people else? You got to tell yeah. us what wax is. It's- so yeah, so like we, so every kind of freemium company will end up with some type of North Star metric. That's, For sure. And it's like the one metric that you care about. And ours was watts, which is weekly active teams, which was basically two or more people from a company using the product in a meaningful way on a weekly basis. And when we looked at the data, we could see the more WATs we had, just the better looking business we had in terms of monetization, in terms of retention. And so that was one of the metrics we we obsessed over and along with number of PQLs and, and revenue. And so they were, that's what I lived and died by for two years. And then when we moved into the core HubSpot business, we kind of reshaped the way that teams were structured and freemium is now just a core part of the business. So, you know, the HubSpot sales teams sell into MQLs and freemium, the HubSpot marketing team acquire both leads and users. And so it's not as separated as it, as it used to be. Mm-hmm. So I'm noticing a trend here, both with the story of Sidekick and then Freemium. It seems like HubSpot does a great job of allowing for experimentation, like creating a small team, letting them run hard at a new problem, seeing what kind of traction they can get, and then if it's successful, bringing those learnings in to the broader business. Yeah, I 
it's what originally attracted me to HubSpot. I think way back when I first joined, I was I had read a couple of examples of how HubSpot had allowed experimentation to like will allow people to have big ideas, run experiments in their spare time. And actually those things became a big part of HubSpot's business. And so one of the most famous examples was a guy called Pikapuda, who I think is CEO of Databox now and used to run HubSpot's partner channel. And he really created HubSpot's partnership channel and he did that in his spare time he had a big idea he brought it to the leadership team they give him the support to do that and that's what became HubSpot's partnership channel and I think that kind of culture of fostering ideas providing support allowing people to to dream big is the reason you know HubSpot could support people like Brian Christopher Mark to run and build Psychic and take those learnings and start to build freemium and and it's why people like me love working at HubSpot and companies like HubSpot, which are always trying to do interesting things and grow in interesting ways. For sure. One other thing related to that that I'd love to get your take on is bringing back in those big ideas to the broader company definitely requires some focus on alignment and getting everyone on board. So any tips and tricks for folks who are trying to drive alignment when it has to do with implementing a new pillar of their go-to-market strategy? That is a really good question because it's something that's very complex and I I still struggle with at times and I still try to get better at. So what I've found is it really matters how you tell the story of the thing that you were trying to do and tell that story in different ways depending upon who you're telling it to because you can come in with an idea and say, oh, this is the thing. I believe in this thing and here's why. And some people understand it because, you know, it's close to the th- close to what they work on or it's close to the thing that motivates them or it's close to the goals that they have. And other people are like, this person is wasting our time. We have no idea why this is important. And so what you have to get really good at doing is, you know, really spending time with the people who you need to get alignment with and understanding what they are motivated by, what their goals are, what they're going to be interested in, and what version of the story that's going to get them excited. And I think that I've tend to, that's one of the things I think I've learned most about over the last two years or two or three years. Because prior to that, my go-to kind of strategy for getting people on board was just to be really, you know, excited and in every meeting and just to make sure, you know, sell, sell that idea as hard as I could. But I think it really matters who that person is you're speaking to. And I think that's what I've learned is to change the way that I tell that story, depending upon who I'm talking to, but I don't have like some sort of really great process on how to, how to do alignment across lots of teams and all of that. Cause I think it's, uh, it's, it's complex and probably hard more than I can explain in a singular podcast. <laughs> for sure. And it's definitely situation dependent and organization dependent, but you make a really great point. I mean, it even reminds me of how you should be thinking about like building out your own product. It's putting yourself in your customer's shoes. So right. with what you're talking about is like putting yourself in your peer's shoes and thinking about what's important to them. Yeah. Because it's easy. Like I, I do, I'm an excitable person. So it's easy for me to be in a room and be excited by something and wonder why everyone's not as excited as as me until I actually go talk to them and some person has 
this big thing they're trying to figure out that is taking up all of their time and stressing them out. And this other person is being told that they have to figure out some other problem that is completely opposite to what I'm trying to get them excited by. So I try to, I try to have like a lot of, we, like when we were going to pitch an idea, we would go in and talk to the leadership team about it. And what I would try to do is get a pulse for every individual who's going to be on the, or part of that kind of group talk prior to actually presenting to them. So I can get feedback on the way I'm presenting the, the deck or the way I'm presenting that idea and see if it resonates with each and every one of them. For sure. So I've got two more questions for you. First is what companies do you look up to or think of as a role model in terms of their go-to-market strategy or their product approach? I'm not sure. I have, I always have, I don't have, so I have just companies I'm interested in, right? I, I'm completely um, obsessed by, by just scale and growth. So I have companies I'm interested in and it changes every month. So I have like an air table full of different uh, companies that I like to speak to or go find out more about. And so a couple that I love at the moment are Grammarly, um, mm -hmm. par partly because I'm incompetent and can't read or write or can't write. <laughs> partly so it stops me from looking stupid on every email I send, but also because they've scaled to an incredible amount of users in a short amount of time. I love their YouTube rollover ads. I think one of the, they're one of the few brands that have nailed their YouTube strategy. And I think they just do generally a lot of interesting things and in how they drive acquisition through the product. Another company is Canva, the um, company that allows you to build different templates for social media and things like that. And again, their growth story is incredible. Their CEO is incredible. And they're doing a lot of interesting things in terms of how they acquire net new users. And then there's a company called Loom. I'm not sure if you guys have used them. Uh, you can go to useloom.com, which is a, a kind of like a video platform. So it allows me to send videos instead of emails. So I don't have to type out a long email. I can just record a video. And they're at over five, 600,000 teams already. And they've done all of that with 12 people and very few, uh, very little marketing. And again, I'm very interested in some of the ways that they've managed to grow the usage of their product within companies. They've done a, some very cool things around uh, internal virality within companies and how they've spread that tool within companies. And I, and I know because we were early adopters of, of Loom within in HubSpot and there's about three, I think there's a lot of people now who use that within the company. And I can see how it spread from small groups to, to the wider company. Mm -hmm. So I think they're, they're the three at the moment that I have like prioritized in my Airtable for, for looking, looking into and I'm interested in. Definitely all seem to follow a similar model of a very product-led approach to getting users and expanding within an organization. Yes. So my last question for you is, for anyone who's listening right now and is thinking about introducing PQLs or freemium for the first time, What's one piece of advice you want to leave them with? So I think you should, I think the thing to think deeply about in freemium is, and you can go, they, like, I'm sure if you're considering this, you're going to go read articles. So some really good articles written about this, but what makes for a good freemium product and what doesn't. And you know, there's some things around, does your product have a broad use case? Does it have, I think a good one to consider is for the people who adopt your product is it applicable to other people within their network, right? If you think about a Dropbox or a Slack, a lot of people who join those products 
it's easy for them to share them within their network because that use case is going to be applicable to lots of other people in that network. And I think there's also, there's a quadrant in terms of different go-to-markets that suit freemium. So a good example is if you are trying to be a disruptor within a market, well, one of the ways you can disrupt that market is to offer a lot of the features that other people or companies are offering for free and get really good at monetization. So I think you want to have a clear quadrant where you mark the pros and cons of being freemium. But the most important thing to definitely, oh, well, not the most, it's as important to get right is your upgrade points. So Mm -hmm. it's a real balance to figure out how much to give away for free and how much to actually ask people to pay for. And I think one of the examples that I always think about is Evernote. I don't think I've ever met anyone who A, doesn't use Evernote and B, <laughs> actually actually pays for it. And I think they're doing a better job. I think they've made some changes in the past few years. And you're, you'll probably, if I'm a longtime Evernote user, so I can see they've started to uh, increase their PQL points and make them far more visible. And because you can get, you can get very stuck if you have a product where people are using it and think it's great, but have no real incentive to upgrade mm-hmm. So nailing your uh, monetization points is critical and being very thoughtful about them and having a very good experimentation model of how you're going to experiment your way to the right monetization points, again, is critical. Well, that's a great setup. We're actually going to be doing a a follow-on episode later this season all about freemium and when it makes sense and when it doesn't. So, Oh, cool. Lots of great points for our listeners to consider. Yes, Well, Kieran, it's been so great having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for sharing some of HubSpot's story and the journey with PQLs. Yeah, I'd love that. I appreciate appreciate you having me on. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. And give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. You can subscribe to our newsletter that is sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators and founders every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Or you can follow us on Twitter at OpenView Venture. Until next time.